Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And of course, since it's October, we are still in our month-long celebration of monster science, horror science, spooky science, all month long. And today we're bringing you another entry. This time, we're going to be taking a visit to the Vampire Clinic. That's right. We have all of these various vampire uh, patients coming in, uh, family members bringing them in and uh, you know, straight jackets, uh, caskets, uh, what have you, uh, all of them with a, with a seemingly uh, insatiable appetite for blood. Uh, but how, how are the doctors here supposed to treat these various vampires? Because we, there's not simply one vampire, right? I mean, all we have to do is look around at the, uh, at the, the wealth of, uh, of global folklore and legend to see that there are, are multiple varieties of vampire out there. How are we to figure out exactly what ailment might be causing any given one of them? Right. You know, I I think despite the fact that sometimes when you hear people complain about the vampire movies of today, mm-hmm. they will specifically complain about the lack of consistency in the rules that the vampire uh, must adhere to in order to survive or be defeated or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, like it, they're saying there needs to be more consistency? Yeah. Like, p- people complain like, what? This movie had a vampire that in like – In the daytime? Yeah. Oh, what? This vampire didn't respond to a cross or oh, what? You know what I mean? Yeah. But I feel exactly the opposite. I I do not think there should be more consistency in what supernatural rules apply to vampires in the movies. I think there should be less consistency and more variety to reflect the fact that the vampire, long before it emerged as a sort of 20th century movie monster with with well-established tropes and cliches that you can repeat in every single monster movie down the road – it was a it was a folk uh, I almost said folk hero certainly not a folk hero <laughs> a folk monster a monster of the people of the folklore you know spread from house to house from town to town beliefs about the dead coming back to life beliefs about how they drain the vitality of the living there are a few things that are consistent but other than that there's a lot of variety and i think one of the reasons we see a lot of variety in vampire folklore is the close association with vampires and real historical biological diseases which of course there is plenty of variety in as well Yeah, I mean, globally, you look at them and they range from spectral forces to physical blood drinkers, from humanoid monsters to things best described as great flesh bags or or chimerical hybrids that, Mm -hmm. you know, involve beast parts, right? Uh, And, and, you know, we obviously love vampires on the show. We're a pro-vampire podcast. I think we're we're recovering to the vampire position, right? Vampires got a little stale for a while there in the movies. Well, I think the things that get stale are, first of all, a tendency to only adhere to very certain uh, aspects of the vampire trope. Right. And not not realizing they have this rich heritage that you need to, you could be drawing from. Mm -hmm. Like how many vampire movies uh, utilize their fascination with, with knots? And, uh, and and cords, you know, where they yeah. have some sort of intricate pattern that keeps them um, occupied until the sun comes up. How many uh, – How many use the uh, – throw rice on the ground or seeds on the ground so they have to stop and count them? Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, or or the idea, which we'll touch on later, the, the idea that you could become a vampire simply uh, by being a magnificent lover. 
That's almost never explored as a vampire <laughs> I don't, origin. I don't think I know that one. Yeah, like, yeah that, that's one that's cited in uh, one of the papers we look at. If you're just a fabulous lover, you might turn into a vampire. I want to see that in the film. Yeah, it should. Well, I mean, it, it should show up because there should be more variety, like I'm saying, in the vampire movies. Uh, I think we're on the same page about this. Well, yeah. and then the other thing, too, is we can't always blame it on the vampire. Sometimes it's just a poor movie or a poor script or poor right. performances or any other uh, the, the many factors that can um, hurt a vampire film. But no matter what, uh, the baseline principle behind the vampire continues to resonate. You have this sort of human but ultimately unhuman thing that wants to drain our life force. And there are any number of uh, cultural and psychological angles to take on all of this, right? I mean, uh, the racial treatment of the vampire legend, the evo- the emotional aspects of vampirism, sexual uh, uh, issues with vampirism, uh, our longing for immortality. But there's almost always this, this element of contagion, right? Some physical change uh, and physiological otherness that can be acquired. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today, the element of contagion, of disease, of physiological change. We want to explore the medical side of the vampire legend. Uh, and this is a territory that's extremely rich, so there's no way we're going to have time today to explore all of the fascinating ways that you can look at vampire legends from uh, from a medical standpoint. But mm-hmm. we're going to explore some of the most interesting ones, I right. think. Now, there's a lot of fascinating ground to cover on this subject and the link between uh, uh, medical conditions and diseases and the vampire lore. So this is going to be part one of a two-part episode. We hope you'll stick around for both of them. And if some of you out there are are listening to this and you're saying, well, Robert and Joe, I'm not really a vampire fan. I'm more of a werewolf fan. Well, the good news is that there's a little bit of werewolf in here too. A lot of the things that we're discussing here you could potentially apply to myths of werewolf, any kind of myth where people are – taking on some sort of, uh, you know, physiological otherness. Yes, and another thing I would say is that the vampire lore and the werewolf lore are not quite so distinct in their origins as they have become in the movies of today. Uh, So obviously we're not going to be assuming today that vampires are real, but we can ask what goes to explain the origins of vampire folklore. And of course, as always, Robert, you and I are fond of emphasizing that uh, sometimes in seeking the inspiration behind mythical beasts and monsters and that kind of thing, we sometimes underplay the potential role of creative imagination, right? Sometimes writers and storytellers just use their imagination and make things up. And sometimes these made-up stories become very popular and spread far and wide. But also sometimes mythical beasts and stories are indeed inspired by aspects of reality, of nature, of human history being misinterpreted as supernatural. And so we're going to look at how that last part applies to the idea of vampires. Could vampires be an example of something in nature being misinterpreted, not simply a product of creative imagination but based in a misunderstanding of real biology and nature at work interpreted through the superstitious lenses of human culture? And of course, as we, we've uh, we've hinted at, an obvious place to look for this kind of inspiration for vampire lore would be in human diseases. It turns out lots of human diseases over the years have been linked to vampirism. So many that we can't talk about all of them, but today we, we, we want to take a quick tour through the medical view 
of vampirism. So let's settle into the vampire clinic. Robert, you started to paint a picture of this earlier. Yeah, we imagine we're in a, a, a wing of Dark Place Hospital. Yeah. And, uh, and Dr. Lucien Sanchez is waiting to see the next patient who comes in at the vampire clinic. So we got a waiting room full of people who have brought their loved ones suspecting they may be vampires, they may be becoming vampires, they may be at risk of becoming vampires, and uh, they've all got to see Dr. Sanchez and say, tell me what's going on Doc, can you help my vampire uncle? <laughs> yeah, and the confusing thing is that these different vampire patients, they, they do have at times drastically different characteristics. Mm -hmm. Some are, uh, are pale and frothing blood. Uh, some are, uh, some are, are violent. Some are more um, carnal in their, uh, their desires. Uh, you know, some are creeping along like, uh, like Count Orlock from Nosferatu. Others are, are just waltzing in, uh, glittering uh, like the vampires from Twilight. Uh, <laughs> surely these are all different ailments. They most surely are. Now, I think one patient that we can get out of the way fairly quickly, not because it's not interesting, but because it's kind of a different direction than we want to go in today, is the patient who presents to Dr. Lucien Sanchez with clinical vampirism. This would be a term that is not so much a disease of the body, but this would be a mental disorder that tends to entail aspects of necrophilia, of cannibalism, of sadism, of necrophagia, and fascination with blood. This is when you get, for example, people who are actually drinking blood, not because they are supernatural vampires, but because they have an unfortunate mental disorder. Right. That may or may not be... Um influenced by existing vampire fiction, kind of giving them something to feed on with their delusions. Now, putting that aside, the first patient that I think we should see in the clinic today is one that you've visited before on this podcast, Robert, which is the vampire who, in fact, is experiencing an infection of syphilis. Yes, and indeed, uh, Julie Douglas and I discussed this at length in two episodes that we did on syphilis, and we recently relaunched uh, these episodes as a single vault episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. So if you want the full deep dive on that, you should probably go back to the syphilis episodes, right? right. But, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and condense it here and give you like just the, the vampire syphilis uh, cell on the whole thing. So first of all, I just need to run through what is syphilis. Mm -hmm. uh, many of you may, may not know. Uh, you should know uh, because it uh, it is it is still around and it has been a highly influential um, uh, disease on human history. Yeah, you might say it is a a major player in the cast of biohistory. Yeah, definitely. So syphilis is a chronic sexually transmitted disease caused by the spirochete bacterium uh, Treponema pallidum pallidum. Uh, or T. pallidum. Mm -hmm. uh, the illness spread through Europe from the mid-15th century onward, and despite the 20th century advancement of antibiotics, which is really the, you know, the silver bullet that, uh, that, that took out um, a lot of the, the threat posed by syphilis, mm -hmm. uh, regardless, syphilis remains a global health concern, especially when you consider that more than a million pregnant women pass syphilis on to unborn children each year, according to the World Health Organization. This form, known as congenital syphilis, causes severe, disabling, and lethal health complications for the developing fetus. Now, in non-congenital cases, the primary infection of syphilis occurs when uh, T. pallidum enters the body, uh, leaving a sore or sores at the site of transmission for three to six weeks. Then a secondary infection pops up in the weeks following the primary infection. At this point, the initial T. pallidum invasion is over, and now the enemy moves through the host. A rash spreads across the entire body, accompanying 
uh, accompanied by various symptoms such as fever, lethargy, headaches, aches, and hair loss. At this point, the, uh, the host will enter a latent or, or hidden stage of the disease, and the T-palatum invasion uh, is still present in the body, but it's just no longer contagious. You can think how that kind of hidden section or any, any disease that has a latency period like mm-hmm. that that makes it harder to discern exactly where the symptoms you're experiencing are coming from or what caused them – those can help contribute to supernatural interpretations. Exactly. And, and it also makes it all the more dangerous, right? Because you, you, you get sick and then it seems like you get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not the case. You still are carrying um, uh, a T. pallidum inside your body. Uh, and also I should point out as far as symptoms go, uh, syphilis was often referred to as the great imitator because it would, it would – the symptoms were not necessarily just, you know, ABC. Uh, in a way, it kind of ties in nicely with what we're discussing uh, in regards to the vampire myth. Right. Uh, so it became difficult to to diagnose at times. I mean, how many diseases have flu-like symptoms? You exactly. Know, th- th- these diseases that are easy to mistake for each other. Now, uh, there's another step to all of this that goes in, into a decidedly more monstrous territory. Finally, in roughly 15 to 30 percent of those infected, the syphilis enters its late stage, also known as the tertiary stage. And it occurs 10 to 20 years after the initial infection. And the cavalcade of symptoms include tissue damage, muscle damage, organ damage, coordination problems, paralysis, numbness, gradual blindness, dementia, and death. Um, this is where you really get into the period where syphilis, um, you know, has just this disastrous, debilitating effects on, say, facial features. Yeah. Uh, I've often mentioned on the show before, if, if anyone wants a, just a fabulous uh, bit of medical history uh, television, they should watch uh, The Nick, uh, which was the Soderbergh uh, television series, went to uh, two seasons. I have Clive Owen. Yeah, Clive Owens plays uh, Dr. Thackeray, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cutting edge uh, physician uh, of, the, of the time. Uh, but this is, and, and there's a, a whole plot line in it where he's treating um, an individual with syphilis, and this is uh, this is pre antibiotics, so mm-hmm. there's only so much you can do. But it's a very well done um, examination of syphilis mm-hmm. in that show. Uh, so, according to um, Slavic and comparative literature professor uh, Thomas Longinovic, uh, commentators have often drawn a line of comparison between the vampire. Uh, and hereditary syphilis especially. Hereditary, again, being uh, that that is passed from a mother to a child. Because this, it twists and decimates the features. Uh, it uh, And it can result in sharp, pointy teeth, also known as Hutchinson's teeth, mm. long nails and elongated skulls. And so su- superficially, it's easy to look at extreme cases of late syphilis and compare them to something like Count, like Count Orlock uh, from the 1922 film Nosferatu. Oh, yeah. Now, the Nosferatu tradition, especially this comes through in, in later versions of the lore. It might not be there quite so much in earlier versions, but like in uh, Werner Herzog's adaptation mm-hmm. of Nosferatu, there's a clear link between the vampire and disease. Maybe not so much explicitly syphilis, but like uh, in, in Herzog's Nosferatu, the vampire brings plague rats with him where he goes. Yeah, he arrives on a ship too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the way a, a number of contagions suddenly spread their way uh, through an ever widening world, uh, and it's also been pointed out that while we, uh, we we don't know the exact cause of Bram Stoker's death in 1912, uh, some biographers do attribute his death to possibly being tertiary syphilis. Mm. So there is this idea that perhaps, um, perhaps this is a this is a big if here. 
the the vampire story that is presented and popularized through Dracula has a direct link to uh, the experience of syphilis. Oh, you can almost imagine a kind of Cronenbergian take on that uh, on the composition of the story with that in mind. <laughs> now, if I were to present, though, a clear case, I mean, there are a number of cases, I think, of uh, of cinematic vampires and TV vampires that match up with this. So we've already mentioned Orlock. I think you could also throw in any version of um, a vampire where at first they're beautiful and then like a hideous nature is revealed. I'm thinking mm. of uh, Salma Hayek and From Dusk Till Dawn. Okay. Uh, but the best example is clearly Count Spirochete himself, which was from a, uh, um, a U.S. military um, uh, educational animated film about the dangers of syphilis. What? I yeah. didn't know about this. Oh, yeah. It, I recommend uh, uh, everyone check it out. If you just go to YouTube and you do a search uh, for Count Spirochete or just Count Syphilis, I guess, uh, it'll probably come up for that as well. It's just this uh, this wonderful, weird uh, educational film about the dangers of syphilis. Oh, I just looked it up. I'm seeing – okay, it's got a kind of like Pink Panther kind of animation yeah. style. Also looks like it might have some – uh, some somewhat sexist imagery, like casting the female form as like a like a, a target of disease delivery. Yeah, you see this a lot. I mean, I don't want to go down the the syphilis uh, wormhole too much here, but um, you, you see that a lot too in messaging uh, of the of of the uh, the early twentieth century, especially where they're they're warning men about the dangers of syphilis, and in doing so, they are warning them about the dangers of females, and they're portraying. Females is this kind of monstrous creature, ultimately, like a hidden monstrous nature. Now, of course, one has to take into account that the primary target of these messages, were, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, men that are in the military at the Enlisted time. Enlisted men, yeah. Enlisted men. But, uh, but at the same time, it is kind of creepy. Uh, and, and clearly, there's this strain of misogyny to the messaging. It's almost the same way that you couldn't just warn children about the dangers of drowning in the pool in the old marl pit. Mm-hmm. You had to make up a monster that lived there and would pull them in. Yeah. It's like yeah. you can't just warn people about the dangers of unprotected sexual intercourse. Uh, you have to like sort of make the, the, the person that they might be having sex with into a, a monster of some kind. Yeah, indeed. Though, though at, at the heart, though, we, we do have to drive home. So syphilis, yes, uh, contagious. And can do uh, very debilitating things to your body and also your mind. But uh, for the most part, like, there's not this link of, of syphilis making anybody want to drink blood or anything like that. No, no, no. So it's – I think it's an it's – there's a – it lines up in interesting ways with the vampire myth. But uh, yeah, I don't – I'm certainly not one to say, oh – Vampires, that's syphilis. Okay, so a mixed bag on this one. A few a few things that say this could have inspired some vampire lore, possibly, especially maybe in the modern age. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it, it's not a super strong link. Still, those vampires that have come to the clinic that uh, that uh, that look a little or, or Lockean, uh, we'll just give them some antibiotics. And, yes, and uh, see if we can't sort that out. All right. Well, we need to take a quick ad break, and then we will be right back. All right, we're back. Okay, are you ready to look at the next patient at the Dark Place Vampire Clinic? Let's do it. What okay. do we have? So this next one, I think, is going to be – it's going to be kind of a false trail but an interesting one, raising some good questions about science communication and the media. So I want to start this next one by looking at a New York Times article from 1985 by Philip M. Boffey called Rare Disease Proposed as Cause for Vampires – I like how it they use the word cause. It's not like inspiration, but like 
cause, like it made vampires. <laughs> and I think there that, that that might show up again in some other uh, media that we should be wary of. So this article is presenting ideas by someone named Dr. David H. Dolphin, who is a Canadian biochemist at the University of British Columbia. And uh, Dr. Dolphin apparently suggested in a talk at the American Association of the Advancement of Science, or AAAS, uh, that vampire and werewolf legends might be rooted in the effects of porphyria diseases. Now, porphyria diseases, I'll, I'll go into more detail about them in a bit, but they're essentially a malfunction of the body's ability to manufacture important compounds in the blood, and this malfunction of the manufacturing of these compounds leads to a buildup of byproducts in the body that can be harmful. Uh, about uh, The article says about one out of every 200,000 people are affected. And Dr. Dolphin gives some reasons he thinks that porphyria diseases may have inspired the vampire legend. So first of all, vampires obviously hate the sun, aversion to sunlight, right? Indeed. That's one of the, the, the rules of vampirism that is, that is, the, that is most commonly uh, portrayed. I would say especially in the modern age, actually, maybe less universal in the older folk beliefs. But he says that porphyria diseases can leave the skin extremely sensitive to sunlight to the extent that even mild exposure to sunlight could cause disfiguring injury to the skin and, quote, cause the nose and fingers to fall off and make the lips and gums so taut that the teeth, although no larger than ordinary, look like they are jutting out in a menacing animal-like manner. And at a time before modern medicine or modern medical understanding, this could lead someone suffering from porphyria to only leave the house at night because of the dangers of the sunlight. Quote, some victims of the disease also become very hairy, he said, conceivably one of nature's efforts to protect the skin from the sun. Uh, and so this makes a link to the werewolf legend also, of course. But apparently Dr. Dolphin was not the first to suggest porphyria could have contributed to werewolf legend. He might have been the first to make the link to vampires. You know, this is also interesting to think about in terms of uh, sunglasses, which mm -hmm. uh, which you and I have researched for uh, an upcoming uh, side project, I guess you'd say. Uh, but uh, without uh, access to modern sunglasses, what could you do if you had a severe reaction to sunlight? I mean, you could wear hats and hoods, uh, certainly, but uh, you wouldn't be able to just throw on a, a pair of all-encompassing uh, 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 spectacles that mm -hmm. will shield your eyes from the, the fearsome light of day. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if what the sensitivity to light is in an ocular sense. It's definitely mm -hmm. there in the skin, um, but it, it could affect the eyes as well. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you could cover yourself up with uh, – just make sure you're, you're fully covered. I mean – you know, this one, there, there is there's that a, might be regarded as suspicious as well by a villager as well. There's because there's some vampire film that I saw part of on TV ages ago. Uh, maybe listeners can chime in if uh, if you don't know uh, the name of this film. But the vampires are seen like walking around in the daylight in I think Texas somewhere, and they're covering themselves with like super thick sunblock, like just basically in like like pasty white face. With uh, with big sunglasses on, uh, and it and it's the is only that near dark. I don't think it's sunblock, no, it's not. It's it? not near dark. They do a little bit of uh, of walking around in the daylight, like super bundled up. And I mm -hmm. love near dark uh, uh, to no end. But but this was something else, and I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm suddenly remembering it for the first time in a while. No, I don't know what it is. Write in. Let us know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next thing Dr. Dolphin says is I think where his theory – we can explain this more later. But this is where I think he starts really going off the rails. So he says, 
A major treatment at the time in 1985 for porphyria conditions was the injection of a compound called heme. Heme is an iron-containing compound, so it's got iron in it. It's it's part of a class of compounds known as the porphyrin class, and it's this it makes part of hemoglobin in the blood and some other important molecules in the body. But essentially, it's important for transporting oxygen to the body's tissues through the blood. Of course, heme is a constituent of blood. It's found in human blood. So Dolphin says pre-modern victims of porphyria could conceivably have treated their own condition by drinking large quantities of the blood of others, which contained the heme they needed. Uh, now, in a quote given elsewhere and reported by the Associated Press, Dolphin said, quote, My theory is that in the Middle Ages, if you couldn't get an injection of heme, which you clearly couldn't, the next best thing would be to drink a lot of blood. <laughs> Now, we'll get more into this in a minute, but I, immediately when reading that, I had some thoughts. I was like, wait a second. Now, that would require the person with the porphyria condition to either have some kind of instinct or, you know, so instinctual knowledge of that they should drink blood. That seems unlikely. Or they would have to somehow acquire the knowledge that blood drinking could relieve their symptoms. And how would they learn this? Now certainly there's there's something to be said about the uh, about our appetite mm-hmm. and uh, and how we all, we'll find ourselves sometimes craving the thing that our body needs. Right, but that's not that would be based on normal evolved uh, cravings that are that are common to people, right? Mm-hmm. Evolution doesn't select for cravings that are only going to occur in one out of every two hundred thousand people or something, right? right? Yeah, though, though I, I'm sure it's making a number of people think of those scenes in various vampire films where, like, the hunger begins to creep in and they don't know what it is. And so the be- the, the first thing they do is they start, like, uh, I'm thinking of Kronos, for example. Oh, Guillermo yeah. Guillermo del Toro uh, vampire film. That's a great one. Where he sees, like, somebody's had a nosebleed on the floor of a bathroom and, mm. and he's compelled to, to lick it off the floor. Well, I mean, that that's great in supernatural vampire movies. I don't think that makes sense biologically. But yeah. w- we'll, we'll come back to this. Another caveat here, of course, is that Dolphin uh, did not have direct evidence that the body could acquire heme in the needed way by ingesting it orally. Another question I'd have is, OK, even if you accept this, that that they would get heme from blood by drinking blood. Uh, why the blood of humans and not animals? Yeah, it's so much easier to acquire. Yeah, uh, you and can with, just go to the butcher shop and get some animal blood. Yeah, you don't have to worry about being, uh, you know, anybody dragging you through the streets and executing you in the town square. <clears throat> I mean, unless it's a really beloved animal, obviously. Another part of Dolphin's hypothesis is, uh, okay, so how did the bite of a porphyria vampire turn somebody else into a vampire? Well, it didn't, but it might have seemed to. Dolphin, quote, suggested that brothers and sisters could have shared the defective gene that causes the the diseases, the porphyria diseases, but that only one of them might have experienced symptoms of the disease. If that victim then bit a sibling to get blood, the shock of the experience might have triggered an attack of the disease in the bitten sibling, thus producing another vampire. But this was the Middle Ages, so you would imagine that like just every day would be kind of shocking. <laughs> right. Or nothing would be shocking because you were so numb to it. Uh, now, I uh, I I don't – I'm going to present several reasons for not agreeing with this hypothesis. But I will say at least in favor of that one, vampirism does seem to be a thing that in the folklore is very often passed from one family member to another, mm-hmm. right? It's not so much like, 
you know, the vampire goes out to the the stuff you see in the movies today where they go out to the nightclub or something and they, they bite a victim. Vampirism in the folk sense very often was like you had one sibling in the family die and then it was assumed that that sibling would come back from the dead as a vampire to get other members of the family or other members from the community. Finally, aversion to garlic. Dolphin says, why the fear of garlic? Well, he claims garlic contains a chemical that makes symptoms of porphyria diseases worse, though he doesn't say what that chemical is. Hmm. Then the mere fact that he's bringing in the garlic um, does make it sound like he's really going for an all-inclusive um, model for vampirism here. Yeah. Uh, which which I I love that kind of thing. Like certainly I can think to a number of vampire uh, you know movies or books where they really try and roll out a nice – Sciency explanation for what's happening. Um, I, I think of um, Peter Watts. Peter Watts, uh, yeah, in uh, uh, when he rolls out his space vampire. Uh, yeah, in that. Or um, I'm also thinking of uh, I Am Legend. Uh, he oh, rolls yeah. out a pretty robust kind of uh, sciency explanation for what's going on. Yeah, that can be a lot of fun. I, I think Peter Watts is my favorite uh, sci-fiing of a supernatural legend I've ever encountered. Like the way he turns vampires into a biological creature is super interesting. And the book there is Blindsight, uh, if anyone wants to check that out uh, in greater detail. But this is not a sci-fi novel. No. Uh, so after this, uh, for a while, this seemed to really catch on in the media, this idea that porphyria diseases could be the cause of vampire legends or as some headlines would say, created vampires, like porphyria made people into vampires. And a lot of experts hit back really hard against this hypothesis and against the association characterizing the whole Porphyria vampire thing as stupid, evidentially unjustified and even harmful to people with Porphyria. Um, so just a little bit more on porphyria diseases in general. First of all, there is more than one kind of porphyria condition. Porphyrias can be inherited or acquired, but most are inherited. And they're classed in different categories according to their symptoms. So there are acute or neurological porphyrias, which attack the nervous system. And then there are cutaneous or dermatological porphyrias, which attack primarily the skin. And in general, porphyria diseases constitute a malfunction of the process creating hemoglobin, which is this protein in red blood cells that carries and delivers oxygen to tissues within the body. An important part of hemoglobin is, as I mentioned earlier, the iron-containing compound heme. Now, the human body manufactures the heme it needs in bone marrow and in the liver through this complex multi-step process involving eight different key enzymes. And as this process moves along, the body the body creates these intermediate compounds known as heme precursors, which eventually in the end of the process become heme. But if there is a problem with the production process, something gets jammed up along the chemical assembly line there. Say if one of the eight key enzymes is deficient, you don't have enough of it to make the heme you need, the body can end up failing to make heme and instead it will be stuck with excess unfinished precursors, sort of useless porphyrins that can be harmful in excess in the body. Imagine a, you know, there's a there's a car assembly line and it, it can't make the car every time. Instead, you end up with these half-assembled cars cramming up the warehouse and getting in the way. I will say, no matter what, um, I just want to. I want to hear vampire dialogue talking about heme. I want to hear it <laughs> as the slang for blood, where they're talking about got to get that heme. Need to get me some of that heme. Where's the heme at? Oh, I bet somebody has done that. I hope so. 
But anyway, so what happens in in the porphyria conditions is that there is a buildup of these porphyrins in the blood, the liver, other tissues, and this can result in the symptoms of porphyrias. Now, there, as I mentioned, there was some serious expert pushback against the dolphin hypothesis. One very succinct, good, short little paper I wanted to quote on this um, is called Porphyria and Vampirism, Another Myth in the Making by Anne M. Cox from 1995 in the Postgraduate Medical Journal. Uh, and so Cox talks about how in the 18th century in Eastern Europe and a lot of a lot of the vampire legend that we talk about, the folkloric vampire stuff, mm-hmm. a lot of it is like 18th, 19th century Eastern Europe. That That is like ground zero for vampire belief. Right. And, it, and it's definitely – this is the, the time period and, and the particular strains of the folklore that have had the greatest influence on – Western and ultimately global ideas of the vampire. Yeah. Uh, not to discount some of the, the excellent strains of the, the Eastern vampire uh, that have made their way into, say, Hong Kong cinema and, oh, and yeah. Japanese cinema. Yeah, like the, ho- the hopping vampires yes. of China and stuff. Sadly, I don't think any of our discussions today look for like hopping as a symptom. We're going to have to – we're going to have to come back to that uh-huh. in a future installment of Vampire Clinic. Oh, well, those are great vampires. But yeah, so I think we're talking more about the versions that are inspired by these sort of diseased Eastern European vampires. Yes. Uh, where, as she says, the belief in vampires was absolutely rampant. She says, quote, So prevalent was the belief in the existence of a literal vampire that the Austrians are occupying Serbia in the 1730s dispatched a team of medical officers to a Serbian town to investigate the weekly exhumations and killing of the dead. Weekly. So basically just bands of just obsessed um, uh, Europeans going around just digging up the graves, searching for evidence of that vampire, and then uh, pulverizing the corpse as necessary. Uh, I remember there being one account, um, and and I'm sorry I don't have citation for this, uh, but I remember reading this one uh, alleged treatment of the vampire case where they dug up the grave of a of a body of a suspected vampire, mm-hmm. and they made the body into paste. Whoa! Which everyone then ate on crackers. Wow! I've never heard that one. Yeah, I have to look that one up again and see if there's a you know, to what degree there's any validity to that. You know, that's the thing about so many of these these folk tales and. Uh, and uh, um, uh, alleged uh, vampire traditions. Well, I think about a, a very common thing is, of course, uh, decapitating the corpse, separating mm-hmm. the head from the body. There's burning involved, burning parts of the body, burning the whole body. Uh, there's uh, d- things you can do to the bones. There's uh, r- running an iron rod through it. There's putting a stake in it. The, one of the ones I really think uh, of that just sticks in my mind is I believe it's fr- I'm sorry if I'm wrong about this. I believe it was from Venice where they found a body with a brick shoved in its mouth. Oh, God, I remember that one. But anyway, back to this paper. So so Cox says at the time of her writing, the idea of vampirism being inspired by porphyria had become deeply embedded in popular consciousness. Like this – idea had really caught on and she traces this idea back to this 1985 New York Times article and Dr. Dolphin, uh, the one that I was just talking about. And so Cox examines the idea. What if porphyria did inspire vampirism? She says, the main type of porphyria disease that could be applied to the situation is congenital erythropoietic porphyria. And she lists some facts about this type of porphyria. One is that at the time of this publication, it was so rare that only about 200 cases had ever been diagnosed. 
It's inherited. It first manifests in early childhood, and it leaves carriers with extreme sensitivity to the sun, so much that the skin can blister on exposure to sunlight. And, uh, and so this is the part where, where Dolphin's hypothesis had some validity to it. There's the idea that, that exposure to the sun could be extremely injurious. And, uh, and also people suffering from this disease can benefit from blood transfusions. Uh, so here was Dolphin's point, sensitive to sunlight and they need blood. But then there are some major problems with this picture of the Porphyria vampire. Number one, Cox actually says sensitivity to sunlight is not a universal part of traditional folk vampire beliefs. It, it shows up sometimes, but she cites how in 19th century Europe, there are all these reported sightings of vampires in the daytime. Furthermore, and this is maybe the most important part, People with erythropoietic porphyria do not crave blood and cannot benefit from drinking it. Uh, Cox writes, quote, The enzyme hematin necessary to alleviate the symptoms is not absorbed intact on oral ingestion, and drinking blood would have no beneficial effect for the sufferer. So like other than sensitivity to, to sunlight, the biggest part of Dolphin's uh, hypothesis is that what, they would maybe need to drink blood in order to treat their symptoms, but that wouldn't work. No, it sounds like they would need to inject the blood, which A, they probably, they almost certainly did not have the uh, equipment to do. And they wouldn't if, know to do. And they wouldn't know to do. And But then also would be extremely disastrous to even attempt right. without knowledge of uh, of blood types. Yeah. And, and sterilization. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would, yeah, it's it, crazy. Yeah. Uh, But also, she says, the fact that vampire reports and beliefs were absolutely rampant in, say, 18th century Eastern Europe, she gives that example, you know, they're they're all over the place. It's inconsistent with how erythropoietic porphyria is an extremely rare version of an already rare congenital disease. Right. Certainly, this is a case where you're inclined to say, look, Dolphin, pull back a little on it. Mm -hmm. And and, because I could conceivably see... Uh, you know, it's like, okay, it's super rare. One person had it once and then it was popularized and it became part of a, a general moral panic, uh, why, you know, a widespread panic regarding the possibility of vampirism. But it, yeah, when you start really digging in your heels and saying this is the model, this is the explanation, this is patient zero for vampirism – uh, then you start getting into trouble, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, she mentions how despite all of this stuff that she's just explained, the Learning Channel recently ran a program on vampires featuring Dr. Dolphin and pumping the Porphyria hypothesis. Wait, wait, what's the Learning Channel? The Learning Channel. It's a channel on TV. Oh, yeah. No, no, but, but uh, I think some of our listeners might not be aware that this is what TLC used to be, the Learning <laughs> Channel. Oh, yeah. There was a time when TLC uh, stood for something, and it was the Learning Channel. What does it stand for now? Nothing. <laughs> it's, it's just a, letters. Yeah, it's just it's letters. It's like KFC. Exactly. I, I, no, no, that does not have anything to do with a state or with a bird, with a cooking method. It's just some letters, you know. I like some letters better than others. KFC are good ones. One more thing I do want to mention here, and I think we should also just mention this as a uh, a general note about our episode. I, I read another paper from 1990 in Perspectives in Biology and Medicine by Mary Winkler and Carl Anderson called Vampires, Porphyria, and the Media, Medicalization of a Myth. And essentially, the authors here take strong exception to the linking of the vampire legend with porphyria diseases. Uh, and uh, they, they said this this link resembled rumor-mongering more than science. It had never even been formally presented in a scientific journal. It was just sort of like some scientist with a funny idea talking 
talking to the media and then the media running with it in an irresponsible way. Uh, but they mentioned, you know, this this kind of thing could also be damaging to the actual image of these diseases and to people who hold them. Like they they quote a guy who had read who had a porphyria condition who had read stuff like this and had said like, wait, does this mean I'm descended from vampires now? Oh. And I think that, sh- that should just remind us, like, while this is a super interesting question to, to try to say, like, is this vampire legend rooted in actual medical conditions, we should remember not to be insensitive about the medical conditions. Real people have these. And, you know, it, it's good not to characterize these people as vampires, recognize them as people with medical conditions. Now, that being said, if you were to pinpoint any cinematic vampires, TV vampires, etc., that that kind of line up with this disease, which ones would you pick? I guess I'll have to come back to that. I, I don't know which one this would line up with. But uh, I, I will say in general, my verdict on Porphyria as the the explanation for the vampire lore, thumbs down. I don't think <laughs> this one carries much weight at all. Conditions rare would not actually result in drinking blood. Uh, about the only thing it has going for it is the association with sensitivity to sunlight, which is not even a universal part of the myth. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue to diagnose our vampires. All right. We're back. So, Robert, one thing that I often think about uh, – with the vampire lore is the vampire's traditional association with the children of the night, <laughs> the, the creatures of the forest with wild beasts like wolves and bats. Yeah, and just the overall bestial nature of the vampire. Um, this this film has its problems for sure, uh, but Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is really uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. What problems are you talking about? Because <laughs> I can't think of any. Oh, I guess I, I still hold a grudge against it based on a kind of a nitpicking uh, fact, and that is that when, quote-unquote, Bram Stoker's Dracula came out, mm-hmm. there was a, a, a cool uh, movie-branded copy of Bram Stoker's Dracula that you could buy at the bookstore. But, okay, yeah. But then also, there was a novelization of the film. No. Yes. No. So, which was, I ga- I can't remember what they called it. I guess it was like Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Did the, did the author of this novelization slip and stop calling him Count Dracula and just start calling him Gary Oldman I, in I, the novel? I don't know. I, I never read it. But I remember seeing it on the bookshelves when that film came out, and it made me mad. I was like, no, if if... <laughs> if you have to do a novelization of this film, then it is not Bram Stoker's Dracula. Right. Because if it were Bram Stoker's Dracula, then the original book is the novelization of the film. What is going on? <laughs> that is a perversion of our modern times. Because that, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula is a great book. It's yeah. a very readable book to, for modern audiences. Uh, you know, I wouldn't put it on the, the same level as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. No. But it is – it's a great book, very readable there was there was no need. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad that that somebody got a novelization job out of it, but uh, it, it just seemed kind of pointless. That being said, a fabulously fun film. Yes, that's that shows us a number of different ideas of what the vampire could be. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that movie is great because it it just embraces the fact that the story is bonkers, mm-hmm. and it asks us essentially to side with the count and not with the human heroes who are fighting him. Right. 
I love how Anthony Hopkins says Van Helsing is just out of his mind mm-hmm. and running around like uh, you just know. beheading she vampires left and right. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a great line. I, one of my favorite parts of it is they uh, <laughs> they're talking about after he beheads Lucy Westerna, who you know is turned into a vampire queen. Mm-hmm. Who is turned into a vampire bride? You know, he. Uh, they're like, was she in pain? And he says something like, "Yes, she was in great pain." But then I cut off her head and drove a stake through her heart and burned it, and then she found peace. <laughs> well, when Anthony Hopkins delivers the line, you know, you, you're more invested. Uh, but roll through real quick the various versions of the vampire that Gary Oldman uh, takes in this film. Oh, let's see. Well, he's definitely at some point, I think, a bat, mm-hmm. and then like a big bat creature. It's almost like a dog bat hybrid. Uh, at some point, he's some kind of bipedal wolf thing, mm-hmm. like werewolf yeti kind of creature. Uh, at, at another point, he's just – it seems just like a straightforward wolf or fox or something, quadrupedal, mm-hmm. canid. Uh, are there other ones? Well, you could certainly – those are the more bestial forms. And then, of course, he also takes the form of a extremely creepy old man with uh, with fabulous hair. Oh, yeah. And Great then- hair. That hair, <laughs> that's, that's what the movie's all about is the Gary Oldman bun. Yes. And then, of course, there's the young Gary Oldman, the yeah. the sexy vampire. Uh-huh. So, so it's 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 interesting that it it manages to encompass all of these different versions of what a vampire could be. But it certainly hits that animal note. That mm-hmm. idea of the vampire is this bloodthirsty beast. Yeah, and I like that it it actually does include that, and it puts it alongside him being a, a smooth, suave, uh, sunglasses, top hat wearing dandy about town in London. I also love his armor in that film. I'm I'm forgetting oh. the historical Vlad vampire that we get. In oh that, yeah, uh, in the that muscles. Film. There's it's so rich. There's so much good stuff. But you're right. Yeah, it does emphasize the bestial aspects. He turns into animals in the movie. And this leads us to our next disease in our discussion here as we inevitably try to diagnose the vampire that's brought into our clinic uh, that is snarling and, and biting and lunging at all of our uh, the other patients and doctors. Uh, this brings us to rabies. All right. Now, it's, it's easy to discount the horror of rabies, especially, uh, you know, in our modern world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louis Pasteur devised a preventative vaccine back in 1885. And if treated early, the disease is 100 uh, percent treatable. Yeah. But rabies is an old enemy. References to the disease date back more than 4,000 years uh, to the, the ancient Mesopotamians, the, the very dawn of recorded history. So it's, it's been with us a while. Uh, so let's break down what it does. Rabies is a viral disease that attacks the central nervous system. The virus enters the body, heads to the spinal column, and uh, heads straight to, to the brain for replication and destruction. And it's just distressing enough to see the, the ravages of rabies in an animal. Uh, but in humans, it's, it's, it's even more horrific. Uh, there are several uh, different strains of rabies, but we can break the virus down in, into two main types. Okay. On one hand, there's uh, paralytic rabies, and this is typified by weariness and lethargy. But then encephalitic rabies is more common, and this is where we see foaming at the mouth. Uh, we see increased agitation, aggression, disorientation, hallucinations. Uh, whatever the strain, though, it all uh, culminates in paralysis and death. So, I mean, I could basically stop there, and I think everyone would see how this lines up with various uh, interpretations of uh, of the vampire. Right. You, you uh, I mean, you're talking about a virus that attacks the nervous system and causes erratic behavior, 
And whenever we think of erratic behavior, we think, OK, well, maybe that could cause people who didn't understand what was going on to think this person's turning into a monster. Right. And then towards the end, they're incapacitated and kind of in this state of 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 living death, right? Yeah, but then again, you think about how every virus, you know, diseases need a route of transmission and very often diseases are evolutionarily smart like a disease that is spread by aerosolized droplets in the air mm-hmm. tends to make people cough and sneeze. You know, the disease makes you cough and sneeze so it can get to other carriers. Yeah, and the the rabies virus is an ingenious hijacker in this regard because once it takes over a host, it needs to spread. Uh, that's uh, that's its genetic mission, and in order to fulfill this mission, it generates uh, the symptoms of that that mad dog rage in the foaming mouth. Because guess what's in that saliva? Guess what's in that foam? Uh, that's where uh, the rabies is, ready to spread to the next animal or human uh, via a bestial bite. And what's more, the virus instills a strong aversion to water in its victim, animal or human, to ensure this frothy mouthful of doom doesn't get washed away. Oh, yeah. This is where the, the hydrophobia – like if you ever read – is it Old Yeller where they talk about rabies and they call it hydrophobia? I only remember one moment in Old Yeller. And uh, and uh, I think everyone knows which moment that is. Well, I think you know you read the older sources and they call rabies hydrophobia, and I think this is because it uh, it tends to cause like difficulty swallowing that makes mm. people not able or want to drink water. Uh, interestingly enough, this came up in our, our basilisk episode as well. Mm-hmm. So just a health note: uh, if if you're ever bitten by a wild animal, especially a bat. Uh, Seek medical attention as soon as possible because while, again, it is 100 percent treatable in its early stages, uh, rabies is almost completely fatal in the long term. Um, So if left untreated, it is uh, almost certainly a death sentence. So seek care early. Yes. So it makes sense that we might uh, create monsters out of rabies, out of observing cases of rabies, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And the idea that there might be a vampire connection, uh, this has been explored in the literature as well. Uh, the hypothesis goes back, I would say, at least as far as 1982, uh, the work of Gomez, uh, Alonzo, and Jay Rabia. Um, and I'll, I'll get to uh, one of uh, Gomez, Alonzo's uh, papers in a bit here. Uh, but yeah, a lot of people have chimed in on this. So the, the rabies vampire connection is, is seemingly pretty strong. Yeah, I read it mentioned uh, back in uh, – uh, just a letter from 1992 in the Annals of Internal Medicine by a, I believe, a Dutch uh, doctor named Alex Hike, who wrote a letter just about the ties between – the possible ties between vampires and rabies. And he writes, quote, Although we may still be fascinated by the vampire legend, we all now know that the human vampire never really existed. Or did he? Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> a bite from an irrationally aggressive animal leads to aggressively psychotic behavior in the human victim. Doesn't it sound like rabies? In the agony of rabies, all affected mammals may display such a hyper-excitable phase. Even otherwise placid insectivorous bats have been reported to attack humans and other mammals. In human rabies, a hyper-excitable psychotic phase is also seen. Although genuine biting behavior has rarely been reported, uh, and he, he mentions a paper by a, uh, a doctor named Lintjorn, which is Case Studies of Rabies, that, quote, mentions a 15-year-old rabid boy who bit off one of his mother's fingertips. Oh. So it sounds like in human rabies infections, biting is not a universal characteristic, but it can happen. And, and again, it would only really have to happen once yeah. uh, for, for the, the story to really begin to generate, right? Uh, so I was looking at one of these papers by uh, Juan Gomez Alonso, MD, 
who uh, wrote about it in Rabies, a possible explanation for the vampire legend published in the journal Historical Neurology uh, from 1998, uh, in which the author looks at the hypothesis. So he starts off in this paper by pointing out that, yes, in vampire legends of European folklore, you often see dogs and other beasts uh, wrapped up in the whole scenario. Mm -hmm. The vampire could take the form of a beast. And in the form of a dog, it could kill all the dogs of a village. And it's also also maybe associated with wolves uh, or cats, etc. I don't know if there's any real connection here, but I mean, it makes me think about the way that animals like cats especially – are also associated with witchcraft. Mm-hmm. If you're giving a, a kind of Christian demonology take on the vampire legend, like, uh, you know, witch, cats were often thought to be the familiars of witches. Now, in this paper, he, he also provides just a nice uh, uh, overall uh, you know, sided look at some of the frequent attributes of uh, vamps. Some of these we've already discussed, like the idea that they're mostly nocturnal. Uh, I, I love this, uh, that you could become a vampire by being attacked by a vamp, eating the flesh of animals killed by vamps, quote, having been a great lover, uh, unquote, uh, or having died of plague, rabies, or other illnesses. Also, if a corpse saw its own reflection in a mirror, it could go vamp. Uh, What? Yeah. How would the corpse see the reflection? Just don't hold any mirrors up to corpses. Then you don't risk it at all. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. This, of course, ties into the whole uh, supernatural aspect of mirrors and the fact that most people really don't understand how mirrors work. Uh, but uh, but that's another another topic for another episode. Um, also, uh, animals walking over a grave could also do the trick. Whoa. Yeah, he writes, quote, signs that made a cadaver suspicious included good external appearance, a swollen body full of liquid blood that flowed out of the mouth, prominent genitalia, and the emission of a cry when a stake was driven into it. Well, I'm a little confused by that last one. Uh, the omission of the cry? Yeah. Well, there. Are, uh, this one's easily explained, though. I mean, the idea if you're you're exhuming a body, uh-huh. and it is uh, say bloated with various gases uh, due to decomposition. Oh. Uh, if you press on it, or certainly drive a stake into its heart, uh, some sort of sound might emerge. Might kind of sound like a sigh, potentially, or uh, like a sort of a grotesque, um, like necro mouth fart kind of a situation. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, this is another thing that has been considered a a very important part of the formation of vampire legends, which is the counterintuitive appearance of exhumed corpses, Mm -hmm. that sometimes you would dig up a body and people would look at it and think, that doesn't look like I would expect a decomposing body to look. Instead, something about it looks like it's you know, recently been alive or doing stuff like it might have blood running from the mouth or it might somehow look healthy and bloated in the face like it's been gorging. Yeah, I mean, the bloating of corpses alone, you think of that. And I did not encourage anyone to look up images of bloated corpses. No. But if you do, uh, you will be astounded at how bloated things can get. And I could see where one might think, Oh well, this is this is an absurdly bloated version of this individual we used to see around town. How did they get so bloated? Perhaps they have been eating something. Perhaps they have been drinking something. Yeah, that's sort of the the folk logic you would apply to seeing a corpse look like this. Another thing about the corpses that's been observed is the idea that um, during postmortem decomposition, sometimes skin will pull back away from things like fingernails and teeth. Mm-hmm. You know, the surrounding tissue will draw back, giving the appearance that things like fingernails and teeth have grown longer in the grave. And so a lot of stuff like this, just ways that a corpse doesn't look like a person would naively assume it should look after it's been exhumed, that 
probably played a large role in contributing to the vampire legend. And then if you get to the point where you're you're exhuming corpses to look for signs of uh, supernatural unlife, I mean, you're probably going to find it. Oh, if nothing exactly, else, there's, yeah. a, there's a sunk cost in digging up that grave. Uh, oh, some of the papers we've been reading for this episode point out, you know, one of the things about uh, the vampire records of vampire control activities is that pretty much any time people dug up a corpse to find a vampire, it turns out, yep, it was a vampire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, maybe the stories of, oh, it's a negative. Sorry, everybody. We can just go home. Let's uh, bury this thing again. Those don't make it into the newspaper. (laughs) Now, in this paper, uh, uh, Gomez Alonzo also discusses the seeming link between vampire behavior and limbic system disorders. He says, quote, This brutish part of the brain plays a central role in the regulation of emotion and behavior. In patients with diseases such as rabies and epilepsy, a clear link has been found between aggressiveness and the dysfunction of some limbic system regions, uh, i.e. the uh, hypothalamus, the amygdaloid complex, the hippocampus. Likewise, a relation uh, has been shown in humans between altered sexual behavior and some limbic system structures, such as the septal area. Nocturnal activity may be present in patients with insomnia or disruption of the sleep-wake cycle. Both have been reported in disorders of the anterior hypothalamus. So he is showing that there could be some clear behavioral links between things you might expect to see in a person who's suffering the neurodegenerative effects of rabies and things that appear in the vampire lore. Exactly. And of course, obviously, we have this animal interaction uh, situation in vampire, some vampire legends, which gives us a, a link to uh, zoonosis. Uh, and, and rabies is a disease uh, that best fits those symptoms. It, it is transferred by animals and then can be transferred uh, from uh, human to human via kind of animalistic uh, attacks in some cases. Uh, So, yeah, the rabid human may froth at the mouth. Their facial muscles may twitch and reveal their teeth. And uh, these episodes may be triggered, he says, by changes in uh, the air, uh, in in water, or in even light, like Mm -hmm. walking out into, say, bright sunlight. And uh, then they may act, uh, the individual with rabies may act with furious aggression towards other humans. Uh, Meanwhile, during quiet intervals, they may lie in bed mentally alert but but with a a look of like frozen horror, uh, perhaps drooling bloody saliva from their mouths. Uh, Nightmares and hallucinations may emerge during this phase as well, which certainly can add to this sense of horror. Uh, And uh, again, this is a phase that we thankfully see very little of in this day and age due to early rabies intervention in human patients. Mm -hmm. I mean, generally speaking, I think we've gotten to the point in most places where if someone has been bitten by a wild animal or or even if you've been bitten by uh, a a pet, uh, like a child is bit by a pet dog, uh, I belong to enough neighborhood groups uh, on on Facebook mm-hmm. that you see that, that, that it's is instantly a panic moment because we have been – we've kind of rehearsed this, you know? Like what if there's uh, – there is a uh, – what if the animal is at all ra- rabid? Like this has to be taken care of in advance. Yeah, and I know – I mean one thing I've read about is that there definitely is more of a rabies threat in say uh, more developing parts of the world mm-hmm. where a lot of times it doesn't necessarily come from like, you know, the, the wild wolf or something but comes from animals like stray dogs. Yeah. In addition to, to this behavior, though, uh, it's also uh, hypersexual activity has been observed, uh, prolonged erections. Um, the author says, quote, the literature reports cases of rabid patients who practiced intercourse up to 20 times a day and who made violent rape attempts. Oh, no. So the connection between animals is clear here and, and the connection between uh, not only 
human and animal behavior, but but between like normal human behavior and like animalistic savage models of how humans could behave. And he says that it's also worth noting that while the bite is the main uh, way rabies is transmitted, he says there are accounts in the literature of sexual transmission as well. Hmm. Um, and this would tie in that you mentioned earlier the idea that some of the vampire folklore has uh, highlights, I don't know, questionable sexual activity or what they would have considered questionable sexual activity. Yeah, yeah. And then he also mentions that, you know, biting is not necessarily – I mean, biting could be part of sexual activity as well. I mean, there mm. are, sexual activity is kind of a, a, a big tent that contains a lot of different things and, contain, and can also encompass a number of different uh, bodily fluids, which could contain the rabies. Sort of a carnival of disease vectors. Yes. Now, uh, rabies is also, uh, this is interesting, seven times more likely in males than in females, he tells us, huh. thus lining up with the frequent masculine vampire trope, uh, especially uh, that was pre- he says was present at the, uh, during the, that time. Uh, also worth noting, he says that in the 1800s, uh, there, were, uh, there was a fairly large rabies e- epidemic uh, among animals in places like Hungary. Uh, rabid animals typically die within two weeks uh, by asphyxia or uh, cardiorespiratory arrest, and modes of death, uh, uh, in this case, may produce a persistence of liquid blood, turgent genitalia, uh, and the emission of sperm. Uh, though he also notes, though, that when wild animals uh, presented these symptoms, or certainly of a, of a, of a human uh, exhibited these these symptoms, it was probably more likely that they would be killed before they reach this point, uh-huh. especially if there's a pervasive vampire myth in in the area. One can only imagine. Uh, and he also uh, argues that, you know, this is likely – there's likely a connection between rabies and many Greek myths uh, and the werewolf legend as well. All right. So, Robert, do you have a, a verdict on the validity of this in explaining the inspiration of vampire lore? I think we've said so far that syphilis might be a good candidate for explaining some cases, especially maybe some more modern cases. We think that porphyria is not a good explanation of vampire uh, – of the origin of vampire lore. What do you think about rabies? Well, I think that this – the overall fear that – I mean the fear of our bestial nature – the, the fear of behaving like an animal, of giving ourselves over entirely to violent or carnal impulses, mm-hmm. that, that is a, that's a fear that will never go away and is just part of our human nature. And in this case, we do have a medical condition that, uh, that lines up with that fear so well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sold on the idea that if there were just even notable cases of human rabies, uh, much less an epidemic – it could definitely have uh, – it could send shockwaves through the, the folkloric traditions of a, of a given region. Uh, but then again, uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to – I'm not really hesitant. I'm, I'm, I'm opposed to saying vampir, vampirism equals rabies. Oh, yeah. I think that – that would be going a little too far. But they do line we, up in interesting ways. We've tried to emphasize several times, I think, that we, we are not going to push a vampirism equals some disease or some condition here. Uh, we, we know that the the inspiration behind folklore and, and belief in mythical beasts and stuff is, number one, more complex than that. Number two, it's influenced by pure creative imagination. Number three, the connections we make with known medical diseases today are all – it's all just inferences. You know, we, we don't know for sure what was going on then and what caused it. Yeah, I, I will say if you, if you want to learn more about rabies, uh, you should check out I, – I honestly can't remember, remember if it was Radiolab or This American Life. I think it was Radiolab. They did an episode on rabies and it includes 
uh, audio recordings or a snippet of an audio recording of a human rabies case. And you hear this, this like the guttural howling of the individual. Uh, so listen to that. It'll, it'll haunt you uh, <laughs> for the rest of your life. And if you think you have rabies exposure, by all means, get to a hospital immediately. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we have to call it there for today, but join us again next time for part two of our two-part exploration of the link between medical conditions and the origins of the vampire legend. That's right. The clinic's going to close for a day, but then it's going to reopen on Thursday, and we will uh, we'll explore even more on this topic. Uh, we, we figured this one would be a, a natural episode to split into because I think everybody's down for vampires during the month of uh, October, and there's just a lot to talk about here. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, especially our uh, our seasonal offerings that occur every October, uh, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the, the show. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts. You'll find a tab at the top of the page for our store. Uh, visit our store, and you can pick up some cool swag, some T-shirts, some stickers, coffee mugs, throw pillows, framed art. You name it, it's available there. It's a great way to support the show. And if you want to support us in a way uh, that doesn't cost you any money at all, why simply go and rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to, to let us know feedback about this episode or any other, to uh, suggest a topic for the future, just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show, where you listen from, how long you've been listening, all that fun stuff, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.